You're recording once again. Here we go again. My, my. <laughs> yeah. Let's record a bike shed. Fantastic. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? Hey, uh, it's going really well. It's been a great week in the sense that it's been a short week. So we just had Labor Day holiday. So it's been a four day work week, which is always nice. And I'm realizing I'm also on like the end, what I, I believe is the sort of like end where I'm back up on the rise from feeling a bit of like feeling burned out from coding and just sort of lacking the normal enthusiasm and creativity that I'll usually bring when I'm coding and diving into problems. So I, I have some questions for you about that because I'm wondering if it's something that you've gone through before and I can share a little more context as to why I'm going through it. But it's essentially my my dad's been going through some health concerns and that's been going on for about a year. And then as his health declined, that has caused more stress and concern. And we are now at a place where he's doing much better and that's really exciting. And I'm realizing that there was this weight that I was carrying around that I didn't really recognize that was there. But I have noticed that my my spark in the sense of the excitement that I bring for coding was starting to fade. And I was getting really worried about it where I was like, oh, like, am I hitting a point in web development where I'm feeling less excited about this role? But I've realized that it's more just I had other very high priority items on my mind. And as those issues are starting to resolve, I'm starting to to feel chipper again. But I'm curious, have you ever gone through something like this before? Yeah, well, I think there's there's some context there in terms of the specific other things that were going on in your life. And so I have had periods like that, and they definitely have distracted me from work or distracted from work is even not necessarily the right way to frame it, because the other things are so much more important. They'll be all encompassing in some cases. And so I have experienced that. Um, but I've also experienced, I think, more mundane versions of it. Or just get kind of burnt out where I'm working, but I feel like I'm working uphill and not making any progress. Uh, in some cases, I've worked with clients where as much as they say they want to make change and they want to you know, improve and things like that, we're just the day to day things that we're doing are not things that are going to produce that change. Or I'm working in technologies that really don't light a fire. And I find that in those times, I really I start to check out from tech in general, like I'll still work, obviously, <laughs> still do the thing that I'm supposed to do. But there's definitely less energy and enthusiasm and engagement. And I do try and be mindful when that does happen. I try and like take a step back and ask, why is this happening? Is it some external factor? Is it something specific to the situation? Is it the technologies that I'm working with? Is it that I just kind of need a break? And sometimes that's the case. But yeah, definitely has happened to me a number of times. And it is weird in the moment because it feels very real and it feels like it's going to be forever. And then often it just kind of fades away over time, which I always find interesting. Yeah, I think that's what I'm experiencing right now is I'm realizing that I started being a little hard on myself thinking like, you sort of like you've lost your interest in this, and it's, it's never coming back. And I'm realizing that I just needed to be kinder to myself and recognize there are some other very important issues going on in my life and to be patient with that and to focus on the other priorities and let coding sort of like start to resurface as a priority when I have time for that. One really nice example of this, um, Carl Reyes, who is a thought botter in the Boston office, wrote a blog post called Getting Back to Work. And I remember reading through that and it was really eye-opening and also helpful and applicable to my situation in the sense that there are times in your life where you're going to go through these phases and then also ways to then sort of like ramp back up or to like find that joy in coding and then to stay productive. Uh, so I've, I've really enjoyed revisiting that article as I found it very helpful. So yeah, I just figured I thought I'd share that because I imagine with everything going on in the world with like the pandemic that we have and everything else happening that I suspect other people might might be feeling similar where work is distracting and that initial enthusiasm for code may feel not as bright as before, but hopefully as we recover some normalcy that others will experience a sort of like transition period back into really enjoying coding. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth in, in this moment taking a step back and asking those sort of questions. And there was something that you said there that caught my attention of uh, sort of being kinder to yourself and recognizing what this thing was, but not that you need to power through it or anything like that, but saying, 
sometimes there's going to be other stuff going on and it's going to make it harder. And so it's not that anything is wrong with me right now. It's that the situation has become really complicated. And again, and there's like the pointed form that you've been dealing with and thankfully are on the other side of and things are improving. But again, I've definitely experienced the more mundane form where I'm like, I just, I don't know, I kind of feel down. I feel I'm, I'm in a slump. And there's a checklist that I found somewhere. I think it was a tweet that someone put out, but it was basically a checklist of things to ask yourself when you're feeling down, when you're feeling like you're in a slump. And it's basically like, have you done these things? I think they're like, have you exercised in the past couple of days? Have you eaten well? Have you seen friends? Have you connected with people that matter to you? And it's just this extended list of like, if you haven't done all of these things, then it's a little too early to be worrying in that deeper way. But if you can look through that list and you're like, you know what? I haven't exercised in like a week and I actually have been eating pretty terribly and I haven't been sleeping well. Maybe that's why I feel weird. And then accepting that, like saying that and being like, oh, okay, that's actually kind of, that's freeing in and of itself. And now I don't have the existential dread of like, am I not myself anymore? But it's like, oh, I probably am just, I should change my habits a little bit. And then that can really help get back on track. I think you said it perfectly. I like how you said that you don't need to power through. That would be my normal mode. I'm like, oh, something's wrong. I'm just going to power through this. And that really doesn't help. So yeah, I like that you highlighted that specifically, that there are other ways to address and acknowledge that there, there's a lot going on in the world and a lot of injustices that we're fighting in addition to the pandemic. So just be kind to yourself and understand if there are other higher priorities And then there are some really great tips in that blog post from Carl that talk about like how to still make sure that you're able to be present for work and and show up and code. So that's a bit of my uh, personal story. (laughs) And uh, starting out on a little bit more of a somber note, but also just what I think is very real and something that I've been feeling. So I appreciate your thoughts on it. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Like I said, less of that somber note, although I did have to sort of hand diff 13,000 line JSON files recently. So in a sense, stuff's complicated in my world. But um, in hopes of giving a little bit of continuity from the last episode, I talked through an adventure I'd gone on in trying to improve the performance of a particular endpoint in the API that I'm working with. And I was successful. But as of the time that we recorded last week, I had everything in place, but I was still spot checking and making sure that I hadn't broken anything in like even subtle ways, like the data had changed ever so subtly or a key would be missing or something like that. And the mechanism that I tried to use in order to get full verification for myself, like full confidence was I hit the endpoint with the before version of the code and I captured that JSON response. And then I hit the after version. So like with my changes in place, hit the endpoint again, got that JSON. And then I tried to compare them. And that was very hard. Uh, It turns out some of the refactoring that I had done had changed the order of the keys within the various different levels of the JSON structure, which should not affect what they mean. That's not going to change the semantics because it's just an object at that point. But it did make diffing darn near impossible. So I was able to find a solution or a way to work around that, which was to use JQ, which is the wonderful command line utility for slicing and dicing JSON. And in this case, I was able to use JQ dash capital S, which is one of the flags for it that will sort the keys recursively in every object. So that allowed me to get stable sorting of both the before and the after JSON. And then the problem was much more scoped down. There's still a diff, and I had to figure out what that was about. But now it was like really contained. Before it was just everything was a diff, but now I'd found something better. So I have to ask, I'm intrigued, what led you to where you were at a state where you wanted to like manually diff the output? Because I'm imagining, like as you're making a change, it sounds like the tests weren't necessarily what you were looking for, but you wanted to check something else about the output to see if that had changed. I'm, I'm curious about that bit. Yeah, so I had the tests and the tests were guiding things. I did have to remove one of the tests, and that always makes me less comfortable. The test was somewhat pathological. Is that a way to phrase this? The test was sort of testing itself. Basically, it hit the endpoint, and then separately, the test would use the serializer and iterate through the objects and say, the endpoint should return JSON that matches what we get if we manually use the serializer. And it's sort of testing itself, but also was broken, which was weird. But it was broken for reasons that I understood I felt like that wasn't a good line in the test, but I did have a snapshot test and I had other more explicit tests that I expect the JSON to contain these objects, to contain these keys. So I felt very good at the testing level, but it was still enough behavior going on here. And it's an an important enough endpoint that I did not want to break things. So I was trying to manually compare the before and after JSON and it was obviously different. I'm like, well, 
why is it different? And I couldn't get myself to the place of being like, you know what? The tests tell me it's good. It seems to be good. I needed to convince myself 100% that these two responses were the same, semantically the same. And so that led me down the path of trying to diff them manually. And then then I brought in JQ, who saved the day, but I still had a little bit to tweak. So JQ to save the day. <laughs> That's cool. I haven't used that before. I'll have to keep that in mind. Yeah, it was super nice that it got me there. And then the last thing that I found is that we had actually some data modeling that was incorrect in the app. And I had to go through and actually fix that, adjust some data, adjust some database constraints to make it so that we couldn't get into the bad state again. Uh, and then, only then, did I finally have perfectly matching JSON responses. Oh, I'm, I'm curious about that. How did you discover that you had an inaccurate like, data modeling situation? Eventually, after I had done the JQ-S thing so that I had mostly similar JSON, I was then able to take it into Vim, use Vimdiff, and I was just kind of scanning through the different lines. And it was only a couple of objects that were different. So it was deeply nested records within this JSON structure. And I could see that they were slightly off, but it was actually off in a really scary way where it was in the before getting one record and in the after getting a different record. So I was like, oh, okay, this is bad. Can't do that. This isn't just like a different formatting of a date or something. This is like I actually have different data here. It turns out the way we had modeled the system, we had a has one relationship, but we weren't constraining uniqueness there. So there were multiple records mm. that potentially could be the associated has one. So like a session within a course has one associated video. And so the video has the session ID in this particular way that we modeled it, which that actually we probably would have modeled it the other way if we had thought about this differently. But at the end of the day, there were multiple videos in the system that had the same session ID. And so when we asked for the has one video, I think it does like a select limit one at that point, or Rails will do the equivalent of that. And it just kind of picks one at random. So the previous version of the code happened to always pick a certain one. It was the one that we wanted. But looking at it, this was incorrect data in our system that just happened to not be a problem in the previous version of the code, but was a problem in my version of the code. Wow, that was a good catch uh, to notice that it was just picking the wrong record than the one you expected. Oh, Yeah, it was one of those things where I felt pretty good about what the, like, the actual fundamental performance work that I had done, but I wasn't 100%. And I was like, ah, I should do my due diligence here, chase it down and convince myself that it's correct. And in the process, I found actual broken stuff. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's good. I mean, it wouldn't have been a huge deal. Someone would have seen it. I would have eventually chased it down. There were like three records in the system of hundreds that had this errant behavior. But still, I'm glad I did it. But yeah, so the, the final step was to remove the foreign key reference, the like session ID from the videos that were incorrect so that only the correct video would have it. Then add a unique constraint to that association such that only one video can be associated with the session moving forward. And that's constrained at the database level. Uh, and then I also realized that we were missing a proper foreign key validation. So there were some videos that were referencing non-existent sessions. So that was one additional thing that I was able to do. And I had to do a little bit of data cleanup so that those additional constraints could be applied. But once I did that, I now feel all the better about the system moving forward. So lots of wins if it's the nice. cost of me squinting at a lot of JSON for an extended period of time. <laughs> well, speaking of squinting at lots of lines, I've had a similar experience this week where I was talking about like for a while I was going through that period where like I felt like I didn't have my same like zest for code that I've had, but I've come across a file, a particular test that I've been really enjoying refactoring because it's a test for a very important endpoint. It's around 1600 lines. And it's just like, if you're playing a video game and you're like halfway down that file, it's like, I don't know, you're like at the final level against boss mode because it's just incredibly hard to like know where you're at, what's happening, how to get out. <laughs> And it's also really hard to, if you wanted to add another test case to it. So I've been having conversations with my current client team about the use of let, and we decided uh, myself and one of the other client developers that it would be fun or maybe interesting is the right word. I think it's fun, interesting to refactor this test away from the use of let and then revisit to see like, where can we dry it up that it makes sense? Do we have a number of database calls and setup that's being used that's not really relevant for each test. So we've been slowly working through this file just in our spare time where we'll tackle a test at a time. And this is a trick that I learned from uh, it's from Sandy Metz. It's when she was running one of her programs or one of her courses. 
that I was fortunate enough to attend. And she did a really neat thing that during our lunch session, she showed a gnarly controller that had so much like context switching. It was very hard to understand what was happening. And to refactor that controller, she went and grabbed all of the logic and brought it in line with the method, which made the method like monstrously large, but then you could at least see everything that's happening. So that's how we're approaching with refactoring away from lets that we're bringing everything in line for each test and then commenting out all the lets, make sure that test runs independently, and then we move on to the next one. And then once we get through the full file, then we can go ahead and remove all the lets and then everything should work. So that has brought back some of my joy, which (laughs) tells you a little bit about me (laughs) that I enjoy refactoring tests. And specifically refactoring away from let, which is a wonderful pastime, I would say. Refactoring away from let does bring me joy. I have seen smaller files where I don't necessarily think let is a problem or the problem. I think it just tends to hide problems more than inline test setup is my my stance with let. So yeah, refactoring away from that tends to bring me joy. Yeah, I think a single let is probably fine, but I've had so many issues. It's weird for me to care so much about such a little thing, but... I'm really not sold on the value that let provides. Like I can just extract a method or do other things or have a factory that better encapsulates that in a way that doesn't have mystery guest problems, doesn't have... Actually, the one that I ran into recently was another developer on the team that I'm working with reached out to me and he seemed sort of exasperated at the end of the day. He's like, I've been just banging my head against the wall for three hours. Can you just take a quick look at this with me? And I took a very quick look and he was like, the data is just not... It's not like we don't have the record, even though I know it's been created. And I just looked up and I was like, oh, let's are lazy. So it hasn't actually run because you haven't called the object name of the let. So it hasn't run the block. And he was just like, oh, man, that's awful. And I was like, yeah, lets are awful. Uh, They're fine. (laughs) They're one of the topics that I'm weirdly... Hot takes from Chris Toomey. (laughs) When there are like trade-offs and things that are subtle and nuanced, and it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of value in this thing, but it has these complexities. You know, it's easy to misuse, but it's also really powerful. Like, I just don't see the value in let. I see occasionally one spec files that have let and before both. I'm just like, just put that in the one spec. That's where it should go. That's where it lives. And what you were just talking about of like inlining all of the different indirection and then having this thing that we can extract and and break apart and tease apart in a more purposeful way. But it's so much clearer when it's all right there. Yeah, I I have strong feelings about that. (laughs) Maybe too strong. <laughs> no, I don't think they're too strong. I, I have them too. I do think it's very much like a, a comfort with which test style that you grew up with as a odd way to say that. But yeah, what sort of like, what's your testing style that you're used to? And so if you are very used to using let, then that's what you're going to reach for naturally. And it makes sense to you. And I feel like it's, again, it's not so much let, but it's the fact that let helps you abstract so much away from the test itself and moves a lot of the important context away from where you're actually running the code and the expectation. And then we tend to just build on top of that. So we're really like optimizing our test, not for readability, but more for like speed and also for dryness. And those are, just not my goals for when I'm writing tests. I am looking for speed. But if there's some duplication, like I'd rather have that duplication where if I have to update something in a test and I have to update, let's say like there's five different examples and I have to update five different lines because something changed. I'd rather have something that's a little bit repetitive, but easy to understand and update versus having like a Jenga tower of lets and contacts where I have to then work my way up to find that very one precise place where I make a change. And then that change is probably going to impact the other tests as well. So I don't want that coupling of all of my tests. I want all of them to be independent of each other. Yeah, that's a much less fiery, uh, but still very, I think, grounded way to describe what I think. So, yeah. It was a lot of fun. So recently, uh, we had a big engineering discussion. My client team has a really cool, I think I've talked about before, but every two weeks, they have like a a lunch and learn session where folks show up and someone will present on a particular topic or we'll have discussions or watch a video from perhaps like a conference talk. And so we had a discussion about that because it's something that I've been very interested in. And a number of the client developers had noticed that myself and the other thought botters that we don't use let in our test. And they were curious about it. They also noticed that we're introducing two different styles into the code base now, which I thought was a fair concern because if someone's coming along and they're trying to understand which style should I follow, which one should I use? So they had some great questions about why does ThoughtBot use this particular approach? And then when do you abstract and how do you handle this? 
we had a conversation with a topic that I think can be fiery, but the way we did it was it was very like everybody gets a chance to speak and sort of talk about their different perspectives and their use of like when they've had trouble with let and then also when they've really favored the inline or why they really like let, but ended up being a really nice discussion where it was very helpful to understand everyone's perspective. So then as we are considering, if we want to change our test style, we understand what it is that people value about let. So then they don't lose some of those values. Oh, I like that framing of you want to get to the point where you understand what it is that they value about something and then try and have a conversation around that rather than like through it or ignoring it. Right. I don't want to take away something that someone's getting a lot of value from and then they feel pain from that. Like you want to make the switch be a positive switch because then otherwise, of course, then people are going to fight you for the change. So it needs to be something that people can be productive with and on board with and say, yes, that this feels like a good change. I will add that when having that conversation, it really helps that I work with a lot of really nice people. So that I also facilitated a very kind conversation because then you can get into like those fiery discussions where people are just arguing. So it, it helps that the team is incredibly kind and polite to each other so we can have like those meatier conversations. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. So give Scout a try for free today and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. And Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. As an example project that you might be interested in, Inertia.js is a great one that I've talked about a few times on the episode. And uh, they could be a great place to send that money to. So give it a try. And thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Switching topics just a bit, there's a tool that I was recently introduced to that I'm very excited about. One of the client engineers, I was working on creating a graph that exemplifies a number of the services that we have that are working together and wanted to be able to like put that into our documentation repo so folks could have an easy diagram to look at to understand how a feature is working with other services. And that tool that they used is called GraphViz. It's an open source graph visualization software. And it's really neat. Have you heard of that before? I have, yeah. I've played around with it in the past and frankly gotten very distracted from the actual work that I needed to do and instead just played with how do I turn text into fun visualizations. But I'm sure you used it to better effect than I did. It's really neat. Maybe you and I have talked about this before because I couldn't tell if this is something that I'd heard of, but I certainly haven't played with it. Uh, for anyone that's not familiar with it, it's a cool program where you use like a dot language where then you can write specifics for how you want to connect nodes to each other and then draw lines between those nodes. And it has lots of neat features where you can control the color, the font, the line style, and then awesome custom shapes for those nodes. And then you can use GraphViz to then convert that dot language file into an image and it supports a number of different file types. So it could be an SVG or a PNG just to name two of them. Uh, but yeah, it just seems really neat. I love the fact that you can write code to then create your graph. So then you can update code instead of having to like use different software to like update your graph. I found that part very helpful. And then to help that conversion process. So they introduced this dot file into our documentation repo. But of course, that doesn't actually give you the representation that we would like to see in a graph form. So they also created a GitHub action that would then process that file and then generate the SVG. So that way, it's easier to like update and then add that image as well. So it's all it's all pretty fun. I'm interested in playing around with it more. Yeah, it's definitely a, a neat tool. And just to clarify the the dot language that you were talking about, it's still just a plain text file that you were using, right? So I haven't played around with it just yet. I was just looking at um, when they issue the PR that when they're adding it, but gotcha. I think it's a dot file, like that's the extension for the file. 
but in that it's just like plain text these are the words and then an arrow that says some other word and then that will create a graph that draws a bubble around the first word and an arrow and then yes yeah. yeah so if you want to have an example of like a very basic graph like you're describing you would have graph and then an open curly bracket and then let's say if we have two nodes a and b you could have the letter a and then two dashes and then b and then close the open curly bracket and then that's going to generate two nodes with a line in between a and b yeah, I'm a sucker for plain text configuration files. So I was definitely drawn to GraphViz when I found it. I was actually trying to do a like taxonomy of the different courses on Upcase. So like learn this course. And then from there, you can go down to any of these and any of those. And then I got kind of distracted by that. And one of the other developers, I asked them for help with the GraphViz part. And they were like, yeah, I, I can help you with that. But do you want to just talk about the actual like course structure instead <laughs> rather than build a system for defining the course structures like that? I feel bad. But yes, please, let's let's ignore GraphViz, actually. And so I set aside GraphViz. But yeah, that seems fair. Yeah, it seems like a tool that we could have too much fun with, but may not necessarily need. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, we have a listener question, and then it sort of brought about a topic that we wanted to dig into a little bit more. And the topic here is about composition over inheritance, one of those phrases that gets thrown around that can maybe mean different things to different people. So we want to tease it apart a little bit today. But to start, the actual uh, question was about a video on Upcase, which we can link to the relevant video. In the video, uh, Joe Ferris and Ben Ornstein talk about composition over inheritance, introduce the ideas. And so the question goes on to say, a lot of Rails consists of inheritance. I was wondering if either of you could comment on software like Rails. Uh, here's a question. Do you think that Rails' use of inheritance is a poor design choice? Or is there something about the type of software that Rails is, a web framework, which makes it a strong and practical candidate for inheritance? If Rails' use of inheritance is a good design choice, then do we have a use case where we would choose inheritance over composition? So yeah, broadly, I think there's some fun stuff to talk about in this phrase, composition over inheritance. Then also, I think Rails does really poke at some of the edges of what we might say we believe. So yeah, what are what are your thoughts? Or maybe we start with definitions of some of the terms and you know lay the foundation. But yeah, where are you at? Sure. Yeah, I kind of like the whole laying the foundation and then building up from there, because I think they ask some good questions about how Rails uses inheritance and then how we use it when we're building applications. So just to lay some foundation, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Inheritance is when there's a relationship between two classes. One is referred to as the parent base or superclass and passes down behavior to another object. That's often referred to as like the child class or subclass. So it's a way to share behavior with another object. And as for sort of like my initial hot take on it, I think it's very rare that inheritance makes sense. Instead of inheriting or including behavior, I often favor delegating to a collaborator object. And I think the fact that they called out specifically Rails as to why it works for Rails is a really intriguing question. Because other than inheriting from the classes that Rails gives us, I honestly don't know that if I've ever intentionally built inheritance into an application that I've worked on. I have not directly added inheritance or I've never I've not built inheritance hierarchies. I have unwound a bunch of them. That is a thing that I've done a number of times where there's a base controller class that has a ton of behavior. We've slowly aggregated it over time and it's so much pain to work in that system in the inherited classes that we end up unwinding it after time. So yeah, I think I, I do use the base one. So I'll inherit it from application record for models, application controller for that. And like current user is a thing that we get from the application controller typically. And I do like that. There is a small handful of cases where I'm like, yeah, I guess it's nice to have that, but vanishingly small number of them. Yeah, to build on what you're saying, I realized when I was talking about laying some of that foundation, I didn't also include the fact that like inheritance is so prevalent in Rails. Like every time we're writing like a database migration or when we're writing a controller or a class that's backed by active record, like we're using inheritance everywhere. So it's really common. But and I also realize I've told a small lie. I think the most common time that I've used inheritance is when I abstract like an API controller and then all of my controllers will inherit from that API controller. I think that's really the main time I can think that I've used it. But I think the fact that inheritance will give you features for free makes it very powerful. And it's something that I certainly learned early on, even when I was learning how to use Ruby, like that's one of like the main topics that they teach you early on. It's like, this is inheritance, it's something that Rails has, and it's something that you can have too. But a lot of problems that actually benefit from inheritance are very complex problems. So it gets really hard to understand, like at what point would inheritance be a good fit? 
And I feel like the trouble with inheritance is that you're not really creating two separate classes. You're really creating two classes that are similar enough that you want them to share code, but they're not so similar that you want to combine all of that into one class. And then changing that behavior of the superclass will change the behavior of that subclass. So in our goal of where we are trying to build systems that are not tightly coupled and where we can make changes that then don't like ripple through the code base like a sonic boom, that's where inheritance typically has that impact where we have coupled too much of our behavior together and we want more independent systems. It's interesting, actually, thinking back to the earlier conversation that we accidentally found ourselves in talking about let in RSpec. I think some of the resistance that we have to inheritance is very similar to the resistance that we have to let's. The behavior and the data is sort of coming out of nowhere. In an inherited class, you suddenly have access to all these methods and all this data, and suddenly things are happening without you necessarily needing to do it. And that all is exactly the pain that I feel with let's. And similarly, if I want to change something, I want to go up and say, oh, actually, for this particular piece of data for this test, I need the name to be this other name. Oh, no, now I broke two other tests because they were relying on that. And so it becomes this this game of whack-a-mole actually trying to change the system. Whereas if we have composition, if we're bringing together different pieces that are more explicit, and maybe there's a little bit more code, if we're being honest, to write this and a little bit more boilerplate, but that explicitness allows us to be much more precise and it's much easier, I've found, to understand how we're bringing the pieces together and how we might change something without breaking the other use cases. Oh, I really like how you tied that together. Yeah. And where we were having that conversation about let and then how that sort of like influences our thinking with inheritance. Because yeah, a lot of that is that behavior that you're acquiring for free. But it's also the fact that that subclass is now going to have access to the internals of that parent class. So then we're really giving that subclass too much knowledge and information where if something changes, then it's going to impact everything that's subclassing that parent class. And I have found that when the object like knows too much, that's when we really run into some pain points. And that's one of the nice things that I like about composition is because I want my objects to interact with other objects that have a very thoughtful interface to use. And when we subclass, I find that those interfaces are usually less thoughtful because we're just sort of like dumping all of the behavior together and coupling it all at once, which makes it harder to separate versus in the composition approach, I can separate that functionality and break it up into distinct responsibilities and have that more like thoughtful design of like, this class does exactly this and it only exposes this to the public world and everything else is private and we can change without expecting the public interface to break unless we want it to. But it has that more sort of like, I understand when something could have a breaking impact on something else. So then circling back to that connection that you made between the let, we have a great example of where we've identified that something is similar. So then we've tried to like share that behavior. Maybe it's to drive the code, or maybe we really do think these two things are the same. But at some point when we realize they're not the same, it's going to be harder to extract or harder to then extend that code because we made this decision earlier on that then we find out is wrong. I am really intrigued as to like why this works for Rails or if you think it does work for Rails. What's your opinion for like why inheritance is so common in Rails, but yet we don't reach for it in our product applications? Interesting question. I'm um, I'm not actually sure that it does. Like I, I do think there are the handful of cases, current user analytics, things like that, particularly in the controller space that I find value in them. But application record inheritance, so the models that we're building in our system, I'm constantly looking up what are the attributes and the fact that they just magically reflect on the database table at startup because they inherit from application record and suddenly they have this absolute grab bag of methods that I know because I've spent so much time and I've shoved that API into my head, but it's not obvious in the code. There's so much about Rails that is magic and a lot of people say that in a good way, but I think you and I both over time have come to think of the magic as dark and scary and it uh, (laughs) will ruin your day from time to time. And additionally, to the broader question of like, I think we both agree that Rails works really well, but I don't know that much of Rails's API is actually what I like about it. I think I like a lot of the ecosystem. I like the pragmatism convention over configuration, but the actual APIs that Rails has settled on, I often find myself not liking in the abstract. So a good example of this is the fact that we use instance variables and controllers, and they magically get copied over into the view context. There's so many things about that that I do not like. And yet, it's just the thing that we have. And so the idea that Rails using it implies that it is good, 
that as a fundamental premise is not one that I'm sold on. I love Rails, love the ecosystem, don't necessarily love all the APIs. But I also wonder if there's something about Ruby that lends towards this. It is object-oriented, but I don't know that object-oriented requires us to use inheritance. When I first learned about object-oriented programming, the first like books that I read were very much really focused on inheritance as core to the object-oriented programming idea. But again, the more I learn, the more I realize message passing, that sort of thing seems to actually be the core idea. And inheritance is just kind of this other thing. It maps well to like coupling data and behavior. But at the end of the day, I'm not super into it. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. There are a ton of VPN providers out there, and you've probably heard of a couple of them, and most of you have probably used a VPN before. But I like to do research on our sponsors, and I only recommend brands that I believe in. I can say with confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market, and here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. The second reason is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past, and many of them will slow down your connection or make your device sluggish. Even when you connect to servers thousands of miles away, you can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click on one button to connect. It's so easy, anyone can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that you trust. Use our link, expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed to learn more. Thank you again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. I really like this question because it's challenging something that I haven't really thought about where I'm so used to like that magic that you speak of with Rails that then I haven't really considered like what would I change or what would I want to be different about it. I think some of the reasons that it has worked in ways for Rails, but necessarily doesn't work for us is as we're building applications, I think it's very rare that we're going to have objects that really follow that Liskov rule of substitution where they're really the same thing or could be substituted for each other versus in Rails, they are specifically building a framework that folks can then extend to then build their domain specific applications from there. So they have over time cultivated behavior that does make sense for us to then inherit and be able to use in our application. And I think that would be my main difference is their purpose is very often very different between like a framework and then a library for the problem that they're trying to solve versus in a product. I feel like there's a lot more change and uniqueness that then inheritance often doesn't lend itself very well to the amount of change that we're going to have in our our product. Maybe that's totally wrong, but that's kind of how I'm trying to justify like why it feels like it makes sense more from like a framework or an open source project versus a product that we're building. I didn't mean for this to be the way this conversation goes, but I now have a direct counter example to what you just said. <laughs> that I was planning to say anyway. And I I do think what you're saying there, what you're suggesting totally makes sense of the considerations of a framework are very different than the considerations of building an application. And where that rubber hits the road is always interesting. But there's a, a related example that came to mind when I started thinking about composition over inheritance, and that's in the React world. So React historically, way back when, had mix-ins, and mix-ins were very much a inheritance-based sort of thing. You can mix in sort of behavior. It's it's actually more of a form of multiple inheritance, I would say, so closer to Ruby's include rather than the direct inheritance class foo inherits from bar. But it had the same sort of effect and the same downfalls where you would add this mix into a React class and then suddenly you have all this extra behavior when the component mounts, maybe we're fetching some data or we're tracking something or we're adding a a DOM node event listener, Uh, but it was all this hidden behavior that we're just inheriting magically. And they've transitioned over time. Relatively recently, they've introduced hooks as the new answer to how we want to extract behavior. And that's very much more a composition style where you're explicitly saying, I want to use mouse. And then that allows us to get that data, but it's explicit where the data that we're we're attaching to comes from, or we want to use the context and we want to pull that in explicitly. And there are aspects of hooks like use effect that I still don't really know how it works or don't feel like I can use effectively. That wasn't meant to be a pun, but here we are. 
But broadly speaking, hooks feel so much better than mixins for the reason of like, I know where the data is coming from. I know where the behavior is coming from. And I'm not worried that they're going to get in a fight and collide with each other. Yeah, that's a great point. Where you just said, I know where the behavior is coming from is my selling point. And anytime I am in a framework that makes it very clear to me, I remember when I was transitioning over from working in Rails to then I was using Phoenix for the first time. And initially, I was very worried about moving into like a functional space and then working with a new framework. But then I started noticing how much easier it was for me to like find where everything lives because Phoenix isn't using the same inheritance that Rails has in that same amount of magic. So instead, I'm having to bring in the specific behavior that I want. And I really enjoyed that. So so I think given the choice, I'm always going to choose something that's more explicit where I have to do a little more manual setup to then bring in that behavior versus relying on that magic of I'm inheriting this behavior. And then if I really want to understand it, I have to go look it up. And then if I want to make changes to it, it's really tough. And I feel like circling back to something you said earlier, I've also been in the space where I've had to undo inheritance because we've realized that inheritance wasn't quite the right fit. So I think I'm very much in agreement with you where I strongly prefer there to be less magic and I'd rather have the manual setup where I have to pull in the specific behavior versus relying on inheritance to then include that behavior for me. And then I'm probably going to inherit other behavior that I don't want in addition. So yeah, I feel like inheritance is one of those like... It's a very interesting, like powerful pattern, but it's just something that I have found more pain from than use cases for. So going back a little bit, there was something that you said there that was interesting to me talking about moving into Elixir and Phoenix, or more specifically Elixir, and that being a functional language. And that starts to push at the edges of this, because in a functional language, I assume you don't have inheritance, because inheritance is somewhat about class structures, and therefore it's it's not going to be there. And similarly, in the functional languages that I've worked with, we don't have inheritance, but we do have higher order functions, and we can pass around and compose bigger functions out of smaller pieces and kind of pick the parts that we want. So that composition uh, definitely feels useful. And I really enjoyed that where you have all of these different pieces, they have explicit interfaces, or the example that I go to is Elm, where we have these very clear type signatures. And so then we can kind of snap the pieces together and build up little pipelines and compose larger functions out of those smaller pieces. And again, to the like refactoring being probably the biggest consideration in my work, uh, refactoring in Elm is fantastic. It's the best. And I think some of it is due to the the type system and all the nice error messages. But some of it is because what we're doing is composing these little pieces. And it's easier to then rip a piece out, replace it with something else than, say, if we had inheritance. In regards to the composition, I am curious. So when you talk about a lot of the benefits, I think you and I are on a similar page. But what are the ways that you prefer to use composition? And what are some of the techniques that you have? I think one of the the ways is over time, even when I'm working in more object-oriented languages, I've started to structure my code in more functional ways. And functional programming, programming with functions, definitely feels like it's easier to use composition there. And I've even noticed some of my like Ruby classes, the little service classes that I'm creating are really just sort of namespaces with a single method on them. And internally, they'll do whatever they want to hold onto data and pass it around in private functions or private methods, as the case would be. But externally, they have almost a functional interface where it's a single method returns a value. And that's always what I want to do. Take in some data, return some data. And then I'm building my system out of those pieces. I think I talked about railway-oriented programming a couple episodes back. And so that's, again, perhaps a little bit of a force fit in the Ruby and Rails world because it's so much of an object-oriented system. But again, I really, really enjoyed that because it allowed me to break apart the little pieces of a computation where any piece can fail and then sequence those back together. That was really enjoyable. And then I think the other bit that I've enjoyed mostly, although I'm interested to hear about your experiences, is dependency injection. So saying I'm a class, I'm uh, you can pass in a particular other object for me to collaborate with. And I enjoy that, but I do find the indirection a little bit complicated and particularly dependency injection frameworks where you really get fancy with it, where stuff shows up by magic that I've never had a good experience with a dependency injection framework. I've worked with a bunch of them. Every time I felt like there was too much magic again. And so I think that's maybe for me the bad end of the composition spectrum. What's a dependency injection framework? That doesn't ring a bell for me. Oh, let's see if I can describe this and A, not lie and B, make it (laughs) reasonable. When I've worked with them, you have 
classes or functions that need collaborators to work with. So they need a cache. So some implementation of a cache, whether that's hitting memcache or something else. And rather than having that explicitly passed into them, they declare what they need. And then at runtime, the correct object is passed into them. But it's done through this sort of declarative mechanism where you can say, like, I require a cache-like thing. And what we configure at runtime defines what will actually get passed in at runtime. I feel like I butchered that, but that's broadly the idea. I know um, Angular as a framework uses dependency injection heavily and did not enjoy that, if we're being completely honest. Again, it ends up in this sort of magic place where you're looking at the code at rest, and it is very difficult to tell how it will actually behave. What actual classes am I going to be, or what actual functions or objects, or what am I going to be doing here when this class is running? Because the runtime behavior is so dynamic. So it's a it's a version of adding dynamic behavior. But again, I, I struggle to understand it at rest, similar to if I have a class that is inherited from some other class or has multiple things included, so multiple inheritance. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, I don't know what it's going to do. Could do a lot of stuff. It's impossible to tell. And I I really find that I value that explicit version where so even if we are passing in other objects to work with, we're being explicit about what those other objects are. Yeah, that does sound like it would be confusing, especially when it's pulling in all the dependencies that it needs at runtime, it would make it difficult to understand like what exactly is being used in the moment. I have used dependency injection in the past, and I really enjoy it. And I haven't used anything heavily that uses dependency injection so heavily as like Angular. But in the past, it's worked for me really well. And I also like dependency injection for a couple reasons. One is it follows that composition behavior of where I can allocate responsibilities to the specific class. I can pass it in. I also like the fact that if I wanted to substitute it for something else, so it's something I've enjoyed from a testing pattern. So if I am passing in a object that a class needs to collaborate with, but then in the testing portion, I actually want to give it a fake of that object. And then I just want to make sure. So instead of having to like stub out methods on this collaborator object, I can actually build a fake object and pass that in. So I've enjoyed it from a testing perspective. And it makes me wonder, going back to like my Launch Academy days, we definitely focused on inheritance and learning about that. I don't think we spent much time learning dependency injection. And it makes me start to believe that perhaps we should focus more on dependency injection as a helpful tool and pattern to follow. And still, of course, include inheritance because we want to learn about that, but also include more conversations around how to use composition versus like, here's inheritance. It's a little bit of a foot gun. Have fun (laughs) and have a little more time with dependency injection as well. Yeah, I think that that definitely could make sense. And it maps mostly to my experience of Uh, inheritance was very strong in the early stories that I heard. And over time, I'm finding composition, passing anonymous functions, dependency injection, all of those sort of things, they feel more maintainable, more robust, and more enjoyable. Although again, there is the like, the version of it where things become hard to understand again. And so there's, you know, there's a nice happy middle that I want to live in. That's that's where I want to spend my time. When you say it's hard to follow, are you thinking you're working with a class that has like, five different objects that are being passed in through like dependency injection or is like if you had just one object that's being passed in with dependency injection would that still be hard to follow in your book i think even in the case where there's one there is some amount of indirection there so you can't look at a specific section of the code and understand in its entirety what's going to happen at runtime and in a lot of cases that's fine and good and worth that trade-off that's sort of a measure in my mind. And I know that's something that DHH really emphasizes a lot is he wants to be able to look at the code and he wants to be able to see it and understand it kind of in its entirety just by looking at one piece of the code. And so if you have dependency injection, fundamentally, there's some other thing that's going to get passed into your class or function that you're relying on its behavior. But because it's being passed in at runtime, it can be a different thing. And so when you're looking at that, you do need to understand at least one other portion of the code base in order to understand how the thing that has this value being passed in is going to behave. And the more of those that you have, the more complex that becomes. And so it is definitely something that I'm conscious of. Um, Or similarly, like if you have a method that takes a block in Ruby, that is, in my mind, a similar version of this where you can say, like, we want to add some flexibility in how this method is going to operate. And so we'll allow you to pass in a block and we will yield some value to it. And you do whatever you want with that value, but we'll take care of the before and the after or something like that. And I love doing that in certain cases, but it definitely makes it a little bit harder to understand either piece in the abstract. 
Yeah, that's fair. That That is something that I've heard a number of people say about Ruby is that there can be so much indirection. And so that ends up like placing a lot of classes in the same file. I remember when I first looked at Scala and a number of the classes were all in the same file. That was a bit mind blowing for me because I'm so used to Ruby where everything is separated out. But there is that nicety of everything is together so you can see it. I would push back a little bit, though, where I feel like I'd rather look for that object that's being passed in and hopefully rely on that concept. The abstraction that I see in the class is going to be enough of an indicator to me to understand what that class is doing and what it's asking that other object to do versus inheritance. Like, I just have no idea. I don't know if there's a method like where it's defined. And then if I look in that file, it's not there. I have to start working my way up the inheritance tree to find where it's defined. So in those two scenarios, I'd still rather have a class that is abstracted and that hopefully has thoughtful names behind it. So then I can get an understanding of what's happening without having to go look in that class versus suddenly realizing the method that I'm looking at isn't defined inside the class that I'm working with. And I have to start looking elsewhere to see where that lives. That feels like the worst version of magic for me. Yes, of those two forms of magic, I definitely well, I, I wouldn't even call the dependency injection one magic, but it is indirection, if nothing else. And so of those two forms of indirection, I definitely like the dependency injection one. But I do still ask in any case that I'm using that, is it worth the cost of the indirection and the extra cognitive overhead of having to understand the two different parts of the code? Whereas we could just say, like, I am explicitly referencing another class here and I'm calling a method on that. That's, in my mind, the middle ground alternative or the, the boring, probably somewhat verbose, a little bit less flexible, but very concrete and very explicit. And yeah, I think one of the things that I'm coming to more and more over time is I'm fine to just write a couple extra lines of code. Like Elm is a great example where you end up writing more boilerplate and tying things together. But man, I know what stuff is doing when I look at it. And it's great. Yeah, all of that really resonates with me. So just to kind of revisit the topic at the surface level, when it comes to inheritance, it's something that we've definitely felt benefits from and rails, but also pain points where there's a lot of magic happening. And we certainly prefer for our code to be more explicit to understand where that behavior is coming from. And some of the trade-offs with inheritance are where we're introducing more of that magic where we're not sure where the behavior is being defined and where it's coming from. And we're also coupling more of our objects together, which often leads to code that's much harder to change. So yeah, this has been fun to sort of like dive into like why we prefer more composition and thoughtful interfaces to work with versus inheriting behavior from other classes. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.